gifts to the body of Christ, gifts. Um, the, he, you know, one thing he said when he was talking to me Friday, he said, they were, they were preaching faith and word of faith before most of us had ever heard of what it is. <laughs> Amen. Now, that's a gift to the body of Christ, and they are valuable gifts and ministry to us all, and we honor having you here today. And let's all join faith with him right now. The, their experience uh, in, the, in ministry and in the things of God, are in, in, they're priceless. So let's get ready to receive. Let's join faith with Brother Happy as he gets ready to minister. Father God, we do receive this gift right now, these gifts to the body of Christ, Lord. And we ask for your help for them today, that there might come a supply of the Spirit, that there would be a strong anointing, good utterance, and revelation would come that answers to questions, Lord, that that he may speak the word boldly as he ought and say those things which would affect the the kingdom of God and affect our lives for the kingdom of God. And, Lord, we purpose by faith to be faithful hearers and doers of those things you would teach through him today. And we thank you for this gift again, and we honor him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave. You You and your wife, Kim, have been a blessing to us, too, over the years, and I know a blessing to this congregation. Turn and tell somebody, I'm glad you came to church today. <laughs> you can be seated. <clears throat> I, I ex- extend the uh, same excitement uh, about being here. Jeannie and I were here with the uh, uh, National Association of Christian Lawmakers Thursday and Friday. We had our annual conference at the uh, College of the Ozarks. This is an organization that I serve on the board uh, with Senator Jason Rapert, who's a state senator in Arkansas. For years, he had felt in his spirit to organize Christian legislators all over America. And it was uh, a reality in 2020. We had our first meeting in Florida, second one in Texas, and the third one here in Branson. I was so... I don't know about you, but I was so touched, excited, exhilarated. Uh, Friday, uh, we were in our first session at the College of the Ozarks. There are 26 chairs representing 26 states in America. These are senators and congressmen that are born again. Some of them are spirit-filled. They battle in state legislators, lectures all over America, and they need to be ministered to. And they were here, and uh, two of our guest speakers was uh, the governor of Oklahoma, recently passed the most pro-life legislation in America, and the lieutenant governor of Texas. Arkansas was the most pro-life state in America last year. Now Oklahoma has... uh, gotten that title this year and so we were standing there in the auditorium and all of a sudden somebody came in and said I have an announcement to make Um, the Supreme Court just reversed Roe versus Wade (laughs) and that and more was the reaction of these senators and congressmen and congresswomen from all over um, uh, America, I, I videoed it. They were standing 
cheering, clapping, had their hands raised. And they're not all charismatic or Pentecostal. There's some Baptists in there. And tears coming down their face. It was absolutely awesome. Now you remember where you were Friday morning. Because you have experienced an historical event. Abortion is still available in certain states. But there are certain states who have elected, already had trigger laws in, in place. We did in Arkansas. At the moment, Roe versus Wade was um, reversed. Arkansas is one of those. Leslie Rutledge, our attorney general, who's soon to be lieutenant governor, she signed uh, the necessary papers. So abortion is no longer uh, available in Arkansas except to save the life of, of the mother. Now, this is an unprecedented time in our nation's history. Almost 50 years ago, you remember where you were in 1973 when this uh, constitutional right, which it is not, that's what the Supreme Court Justice uh, said, that Roe versus Wade was unconstitutional. It is not a constitutional right afforded uh, to, and, and I don't want to get into the abortion uh, issue but think of all the lives that are going to be saved now. This is what it's all about. It's about life. And we've killed over 60 million children in the womb. And we've wondered why God hasn't blessed America. Wondered why we're fighting to get America back, make it great again. You can't appeal to God to bless your nation when you're murdering 60 million babies. So now that curse is removed. God has an opportunity now to minister to this country like never before. Now, if you watch the secular news, of course, you're going to see all the protests and you may see worse things happen. There may continue to be riots and uh, who knows what all. But don't be distracted. Don't let that deter you into doing what God has called you to do. For all of you that have worked in the pro-life movement, uh, both here in Missouri and in Florida, and um, if you've been a part of that, thank you. All of you that have prayed and interceded over the years, I want to thank you uh, because now we see what we've been believing for and working for. Amen. Nothing is impossible with God. Amen. Now, uh, I called uh, Keith Friday to just say hello. I just always do this. I said, I'm just in your town and just wanted to say hello. I always appreciate it when people come to Little Rock and call me. And, um, so I said, uh, where are you? He said, well, we're in Sarasota. I said, well, well I guess see you next time. I said, we've got to go back tomorrow, which was Saturday. He said, well, would you like to preach Sunday morning? <laughs> <laughs> Asking a preacher if he'd like to preach, you know. That's like saying, is the Pope a Catholic? You know, yes. We, but I, 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 don't, I don't, you don't need to invite me. I don't need to, to do that. Well, we, we'd like for you to. I thought, well, praise God, we will. Well, I didn't come to preach, so I didn't have any notes. I left my big Bible at home. I had my traveling Bible. And so I immediately went and got my scripture and I, 
I found some notes uh, that I had put on my iPad uh, a few weeks ago. I don't preach out of my iPad or iPhone. Um, I just I just like the Bible, and I just like to hold it in my hand. And I'm not tech savvy. I know how to turn it on and turn it off. I know how to use it, and send and receive emails and that kind of thing. But uh, so I'm going to use these notes. <clears throat> This message that I preached um, on our daily TV show and a weekly TV show was called Ownership, the Law of Empowerment. So that's what I'm going to share with you today. Say it out loud. Ownership, Ownership. the Law of Empowerment. empowerment. Say it again. Ownership, Ownership. the the Law of Empowerment. Now, I have friends, and you may have them too, and you may believe this way. They tell me we don't own anything. We're just stewards. We're just servants. We own nothing. God owns everything. Well, I think you're going to see in the scriptures that God has given us joint ownership privilege through Christ. He is going to hold us responsible for taking ownership of what he has given us. And so I hope you can see this. I'm going to talk about what the Lord said to me. Uh, about ownership and why. And uh, he said the, uh, the ownership issue is about who owns the earth. Who has dominion over God's creation? Satan wants so much to be uh, in charge. But uh, God has put man, created in his image, in charge. I'm going to talk about, uh, you may have heard this term, the global reset. And what you hear uh, in the secular society and even in churches, even in the conspiracy prophecy, the pseudo-prophets, the wannabe apostles, when you, you hear these terms, and I'm going uh, to show you what the Bible has to say about ownership and about a global reset. Uh, we're not talking about uh, a global reset in, in economics is going from socialism, I mean, from capitalism to socialism to communism. That's not what the Bible's talking about. That's not global reset. And then you could talk about cancel culture. When you get rid of the old, going to the new. That's the reset. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Build back better, Green New Deal, none of those things are reset. The Bible's very clear at what the global reset is, when it's going to take place, and what it's all about. And uh, then we will uh, talk about a deception, number one weapon of Satan. And then I'm going to talk about the second coming of Christ. He said, Pastor, you'll get all this in in 30 minutes. Well, Keith told me that I could take as long as... But I won't, I won't do that to you. But anyway... Then I'm going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. And then if we have time, the five crowns that you will receive that are available to you when you get before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is not about salvation or punishment. It's about rewards. It's about what you have done with what God has given you. It's about what you took ownership of. Okay. But first... Uh, if you would uh, allow me, uh, you know, Jeannie and I pastored our church 
for 35 years. Um, seven years ago, uh, the Lord revealed it to us that it was time for us to turn it over to one of our associates, which we did. And uh, he's done a, a great job. We still attend church there. I told him, I said, I'm going to keep my pew and my parking place. So, and we attend there, and I, I speak there two or three times a year. Uh, somebody asked me, he said, Pastor, you, you pastor for 35 years? Yeah, Andrew Womack asked me, he said, uh, how could you build a ministry and pastor a church for 35 years and then turn it over to somebody else? I said, well, it's easy, Andrew, when you realize it's not your church. Amen. It's Jesus' church. They're not your sheep. They're his sheep. And at first, when I first started pastoring, I told the Lord, I said, this is not fair. I read where it says, I'm going to have to give account for how I watched for their souls. But I said, they don't belong to me. So I think that's unfair. You're going to hold me accountable well, how I watch for their souls, but they don't belong to me. They're not my sheep. They're your sheep. I said, I'd like scripture and verse, please. And he said, and David kept his father's sheep. And somebody asked me, said, what do you miss the most about pastoring? I said, the people. That's what I miss the most. Uh, Jeannie and I were... <clears throat> The 35th year, we were baptizing babies of the babies that we had baptized. You're, you're talking a whole generation. And so we missed the people. And just being here this morning and knowing that we're uh, talking to the saints in Sarasota as well as the saints in Branson, just, just being here in the church, I love church. I love to go to church. I'm part of, I am the church. I'm part of the church. You're part of the church. I like being with the church. I like being in the body of Christ. It's totally different than ministering on television or in a conference or in a hotel or a civic center. It's just, it's family. It's being here in the church. And we have so many fond memories of people in our church. Uh, that we have seen saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, healed. I've done their weddings. I've done their funerals, baptized their babies. <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes over the years, but the congregation was so gracious and kind to forgive me of my mistakes. You don't always think right, speak right. I remember I was dedicating a baby Sunday morning. And this was the baby. This was a granddaughter of our secretary. Her daughter had had this baby and says, want me to dedicate it? And I've known them all for years. So I said, sure. Well, when they handed me the baby, you could smell. <laughs> and you knew that this baby needed changing. And... You know, in my ignorance and whatever, I just said out loud, wow, why didn't you change this baby before you handed it to me? <laughs> and I knew I was in trouble. And so I had to apologize to my secretary's daughter, to my secretary. I mean, I've got to work with her every day. 
And, uh, and the Lord told me, he said, now, if you make a mistake publicly, you apologize publicly. But if you make a mistake privately, you can apologize privately. So I tried to make as many mistakes privately as I could. <laughs> but I, I just, I just want to say how good it is to be here. And can I just say hello to you? Mississippi. Mississippi. Been at Brother Tracy Harris's convention and. And God told me to come up here and this is what Praise the Lord, Mississippi. You know, my wife was born in Memphis, but she lived in Mississippi most of her life. Yeah. Hickory Flat, Mississippi. I love Mississippi people. They all got two names. Bobby Ruth. Floyd Jean. Elizabeth May. I mean, they all got... And now, Jeannie's uncle, her father's brother, was the president of Hines Community College for 60 years, Dr. Clyde Muse. And when he comes to visit us, he walks in, he says, happy, I brought you some vegetables. <laughs> he was friends with Jerry Clowers. Uh, and Jerry told him one day, he said, Clyde, I'm going to build me a new house next door to the Leadbetters. If you know anything about Jerry Clowers. <laughs> and Clyde said, Jerry, why do you want to build a house next to the Leadbetters? He said, Clyde, I got to stay close to the Leadbetters because that's where I get all my material. <laughs> what is your name? Debbie. Debbie. Is this your church? Yes. Yes. Praise God. Where are you from? Miami, Oklahoma. Miami, Oklahoma. San Diego. San Diego. What are you doing here? <laughs> you live here now? No. We're gonna oh. relocate. You're going to relocate? Good for you. And you are Sharon, and you're a volunteer. Good. And you are Sharon's husband. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, Joe. How are you doing? I'm Joe's wife. And you're Joe's wife. <laughs> and you're Joe's daughter. Do you know Joe? I don't know. No. We just moved here three weeks ago to be a part of this church. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. Mexico. This your mother? No. From where? You moved from New what? Mexico. New Mexico. I know where that is. Okay. I know Joe. You know Joe? <laughs> <laughs> God bless y'all. Bless you too. You know, the Bible says that the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost. I had the privilege of praying in the big tent twice with R.W. Shambach. He's a principal man, big man. His hand's twice the size of mine. And... Uh, he asked me if I would pray with him in the healing line. I said, I'd love to. Now, he's, he's kind of rough. He said he learned how to pray for people when he worked with A.A. A. Allen. And uh, if you had back problems, he'd tell you to bend over, and he'd go, whop, 
and it hits you. I saw him do it many times, hit you in the middle of the back, and they all fell out. And I said, Brother Schembach, I said, I'd fall out too if you hit me like that. I said, why? Why do you do that? He said, that's the way Brother Allen taught me to pray. He said, that's where my faith is. But uh, Brother Schembach had something that I had never seen before. Brother Schembach had a love in his heart for people. And uh, he was a guest speaker at a big convention one time, and so... We were visiting and took him to lunch. And I said, you, you know, they've got a guest room set up in the backs for the speakers so you don't have to be out in public and the people and all. He said, oh, no. He said, I want to be where the people are. I want to sit at the front table in the restaurant so I can see everybody that comes in the door. And when I'd go down the line praying with him and he'd walk up to a man, a woman, whoever it was, you could sense the love of God that he had for those people. And the people could sense it too. Especially the ones that he called the big old mamas. He loved to pray for mamas. And he'd lay that big hand on their head, on their face. In fact, he would lay his hand anywhere they had a pain. He laid his hands places I wouldn't dare put my hands but they didn't mind because they knew that he loved them and they received that love and that power and it went all through. And I tell you, by the time I got through praying with him and even to this day, I still feel it and still think about it even though we're not pastoring anymore and uh, we don't travel as much as we used to and a lot of the meetings that we had were canceled because of COVID and so forth, but I've never lost and don't ever want to lose that compassion and that love that he had for those people. And uh, I, I guess I'm saying all this. I'm just, I'm just blessed by being here, being in the church, being in the house of God with all of God's saints. Amen. Not an ain't among us. We're all saints. And uh, we've got so much to look forward to. And you're going to see that uh, in the future, uh, because uh, abortion on the man is no longer the law of the land, you're going to see God moving in a lot of ways. You're going to see revival. You're going to see so many things. Okay, uh, turn to Proverbs with me. Proverbs chapter 6. And I have my little traveling Bible. The print is really small, so... I asked Dave, I said, would you, do you have a bigger Bible that I could use if I need it? I don't need it yet, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet when he is found... He must restore sevenfold. Now, I've heard for years, I've taught it myself. You know, the devil steals from you, make him pay back seven times. And I've taught it, I've heard it taught. And I was in a conference down in Texas a few years ago, and I heard this message, and I'd heard it before. 
I went to bed and I got up the next morning right before, you know, you're in that twilight zone and I woke up and the Holy Spirit speaks to me a lot when I first get up. And all of a sudden, I heard the Holy Spirit say, it's not about running after the devil to get back what he's stolen. It's about ownership. Whoa. I said, say that again, Lord. He said, it's not about running after the devil to get back what he's stolen. It's about ownership. It's about who owns the earth. It's about who has the authority and takes dominion over the creation. He said, Satan wants to do that. That's what he wants. He wants to be, the Bible said he wanted to be God. And he was thrown out of heaven. Jesus said, I saw him fall as lightning from heaven. In an effort to clarify it, the Lord said, think of it like a football game. My people are on the defense instead of the offense. They're always defending themselves. If Satan steals from them, they're running after to make him pay back seven times. He said it's not about running after the devil, trying to get back what he's stolen. It's not about defense. It's about offense. It's about ownership. It's about taking ownership of what I have given you. I want you to be on the offense. And so I began to study. And I found where in Genesis, let's go over there to Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image. You've probably heard this uh, so many times. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let's make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the cattle over the earth, all, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. God is a spirit being. So man was created a spirit being in the image and likeness of God so he could fellowship with God and so he could operate in the laws of God. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea. If you expand that, command, take commandment, take ownership, uh, take dominion, take authority over everything that I've created. I've given you every herb-bearing seed, every seeding seed that yields seed, every tree whose fruit yields uh, seed. To you it shall be for fruit or for food or for plenty, one translation says. It shall be uh, for plenty. Now, there is a cult religion, cult denomination, and I, I'm not saying this to be divisive or uh, contradictory. If I say anything here this morning... Uh, just Pastor Dave or Keith can correct me and fix it uh, later. <laughs> but there is a cult religion that calls Adam God. And that's part of their terminology, Adam God. Adam was not a God incarnate. There's only one incarnate man in the scriptures, and that's Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Adam was not God in the flesh. He was made in the image and likeness of God. He was made a spirit being. And because, you know, if Adam was incarnate, of course, we wouldn't need Jesus. And, you know, it wouldn't do much good for us to 
you know, be saved and all that, if Adam was going to be the beginning and the end result. And, and I say that because I want you to know that Adam was told in Genesis 2.15 to take charge of the garden, to take charge of the creation. And God told him, he said, I want you to till it and to keep it. I want you to take charge over the garden. I'm giving it into your care. Uh, several years ago, Jeannie and I were in London, and uh, we've been there several times, and we went over to the British Museum. Um, and there's so much that you can learn. Uh, the British have excavated so many what we'd call holy sites. And there is the Weld Prism, W-E-L-D, Prism, P-R-I-S-M. And in hieroglyphics and languages, it talks about uh, the two gods from Eden. And it has a, a picture of them sitting on thrones. And it has a serpent coming down from the tree. And it talks about the wealth of the creation that God gave Adam and Eve. And uh, then in the Oxford, uh, excuse me, the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, England, they excavated uh, the city of Eden, Eridu is what the Babylonians called it. So there is actually a city. Uh, God started with a city, Eden. He ends with the city, New Jerusalem. And he gave man authority and power, ownership, if you please, control of his creation. In Psalm 8, the psalmist says, What is man that you have made him and giving him ownership or control or dominion over the works of your hands? Because that's what it says. Now, the contention comes sometimes when we say, Well, we don't own anything. Uh, we're just stewards and servants. I want to make a distinction. I don't have a lot of time to do this, so listen carefully. There is a difference between an owner and a steward. An owner is who you are. A steward is what you do. So you're an owner of the creation of God, been given dominion and authority to rule and reign in Christ. Keep in mind that everything is through and by Christ. We are joint heirs through Christ. And stewardship and serving is what we do. But Paul said in Galatians, and I'll read it in a minute, I call you no longer servants, but sons. So you are owners and sons legally. You have been created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, a spirit being, you are not God, but you have been created in his image and likeness. And you are to take the a responsibility, the ownership privilege of ruling and reigning over God's creation. Uh, several years ago when my father, uh, before he died, and my father was of the greatest generation, according to Tom Brokaw. He made it through the Great Depression, served in World War II, came home, rebuilt America. That's the greatest generation. I asked my dad, I said, Dad, where were you when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor? He said, well, I was 18 years old, 
I was a civil engineering student at Little Rock, Uni Little Rock Junior College, which is now University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Uh, and he said, and we heard the news on the radio that uh, Pearl Harbor had been bombed. I said, well, what did you do? He said, I did what we all did. We went down and enlisted. That's what they did. And he came home four years later. Thank God he came home. <laughs> I saw an interview with a 90-year-old 90-year-old-plus uh, Army. Actually, he was a, a foot soldier, and he was in D-Day invasion. They asked him, said, did you know that you were accepting a suicide mission uh, on D-Day? And he said, yes, sir, we did. We all knew we were accepting a suicide mission. He said, well, why did you do it? He said, because it had to be done. And they did it. <laughs> so I asked my dad, I said, uh, where were you? What did you do? And all that. And he told me. And then he said, now, I've called you and your sister here together to show you uh, what's going to happen after I die. Uh, and he handed me a copy of his trust, his trust fund, which he learned about trusts from a Jewish friend of his. He said, that's how we hold on to our wealth is we make it a trust fund. And that way nobody can squander it. They can borrow against it. They can live off the interest, but they can't get rid of it. And uh, he said, so here's the Caldwell Family Trust. And my mother had died uh, years before, and he had remarried. I actually married he and his, his wife at that time. He had a, a Caldwell Family Trust, and he had a Virginia Caldwell Trust. And the way it worked was when he died, there was a disbursement, a cash disbursement to me and my sister. And then the trust stayed into, uh, in, in effect, in the trust. And then she lived off of her trust until she died. And then when she died, her trust went uh, to my sister and I. And he had it set up so this was uh, to his children and his children's children. That's the way he set it up. Now, he, he didn't know everything I'm teaching you, but he, he patterned it after the Bible. He even, he even included in any adopted children. Well, we're adopted into the family of God through Christ. In Arkansas, uh, the laws of adoption are so strong, uh, your old birth certificate is uh, locked up, so to speak, cannot be retrieved except by a court order. And a new birth certificate is issued with the names of the adoptive parents as birth parents. So you may know this. When you're, when you're adopted, if it's like the laws in Arkansas and you get your birth certificate, you, you don't know you're adopted because it shows birth parents. It doesn't show your original parents. It shows your birth parents. That's... The way the Bible is, adopted means to be literally placed as a son. And so I was reading through all this, and Daddy died, and the disbursement was made, and everything was carried out according to his wishes. One day I was just thinking about this as I was studying this message on ownership. I said, you know, Lord, I am so blessed that my father, he worked so hard. When he got out of the uh, home from the war, he worked two jobs, one at daytime, one at night. He made $19 a week. He had a wife and two children. 
His first house was $7,500. But he didn't have the $500 deposit to put down on it. Didn't own a car. We didn't own a refrigerator. We had a nice box. And I asked my mom one day, I said, are we poor? And she said, no. She said, why do you ask? I said, I feel poor. We run out of milk. She just stick it under the faucet and fill it half full of water. That, that, that was the original skim milk. <laughs> I said, why aren't we poor? She said, because we have love. <laughs> so I said, Lord, this is, this is awesome. I didn't do one thing to earn this money and this trust fund. I, I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't make it. My father is the one that did all this. And I said, the only thing that qualifies me for this inheritance is I was born his son. And God said, yeah. And that's what qualifies you for my inheritance is being born again. Now remember that. You qualify for ownership because you're born into the family. Y'all still here? Okay. Uh, let's go to um, Global Reset. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go to Luke 15. I, I think this will help you with ownership and uh, stewardship. Remember, owner and son, daughter, is who you are. Stewardship and servant is what you do. Uh, Luke 15 and I think this will help you. Verse 11. A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. That was his inheritance. So he divided them, his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions. Did you get that? This son took ownership of his inheritance. He asked his father for his inheritance. And then when he gave it to him, it said he took possession of his inheritance. I was uh, interviewing a friend of mine on our daily television program one day, and we were talking about this. Now, he didn't believe we owned anything. He said, we don't own anything. It's all God's, and we're just stewards. I said, uh, do you, it's a nice suit of clothes. I said, do you own your uh, jacket here? Well, of course. Then you do own something. I think it was Brother Copeland that flew into an airport one time, and this guy walked up to him and said, how does it feel to fly around in God's airplane? And Brother Copeland said, I don't know. I've never been in God's airplane. He said, well, isn't that his airplane? He said, no, that is mine. God travels at 186,000 miles a second. What does he need an airplane for? And he wasn't trying to be smart. He was just trying to, to reason with the guy that we, we've misplaced this. And it's a religious con. We don't own anything. Well, unfortunately, you do own something. And you're going to be held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ for what you did with what you were given ownership of. 
we're all going to be held accountable for what we did in the body of Christ. And there's so many examples about people that told lords and masters, you know, I just I didn't I didn't think you would be fair with me, so I just took your talent and hid it in the earth. And one story said, well, you should at least put it in the bank and draw an interest off of it. Stewardship and service is what you do. Ownership and son, owners, sons, is who you are. So this young man took possession of his inheritance. And, and this, is, <laughs> this is so strong and powerful if you meditate on it. Okay, in verse 14, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land. He began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. He sent him in the fields to feed swine. That's not the kind of job a young Jewish boy would want. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the uh, pods uh, that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said... How many of my father's servants, hired servants, have bread enough to eat and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The father didn't respond. He couldn't do that. He's not a hired servant. He's a son. Okay. And he arose and came to the father. In fact, the father did just the opposite. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him and said, son. <laughs> and, and the son said, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you in your sight, and I'm no longer to be worthy to, call, worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. He came and he drew near the house and he heard the music dancing. So he called one of the servants and says, what's going on? He said, your brother's come home because he has received him safe and sound. Your father's killed the fatted calf. And the boy was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. And he answered and said to his father, Father, all these years I have been serving you. Uh, I never transgressed against your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young kid, goat, or had a party. But as soon as this son of yours came who's devoured your living, see, the older son never saw the ownership part. He never took ownership. The younger son did. It says he took his living. It was his. What my father worked hard for all his life, he gave it to me. He made it. He owned it. But then he transferred it to me. He gave it to me. God created everything. He owned everything. You know, I get so upset sometimes when you hear these secular news people talk about 
Israel, the nation of Israel, occupying the land. They don't own, uh, occupy the land. They own the land. The land was given to them by covenant, by decree. It's their land. <laughs> it belongs to them. I'll read you something in a minute I think will will bless you. Now, now, Dave, I can just barely see this clock up here, so you'll have to blow the whistle or something. But I know it's an hour earlier here than it is in Florida. So I'll, I'll try to uh, do my best. Okay. And so the father said to the son, verse 31, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. Take ownership of it. Several years ago, I had a dream. I was watching a train come down the train track. And many of you will know what I'm talking about. The, the train cars were flatbed cars. And they had 18-wheeler tractor trailers on top. It's called piggybacking. They take the tractor off of the truck and they put it on the train car and they move it across the country. And this thing was just... And I, I, I stopped and I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, what, what is that? He said, son, that train carrying all those piggyback trailer uh, modules represent all the blessings that I have tried to give you all your life and you wouldn't accept them. Oh, it, I, it brought tears to my eyes. All the blessings God has tried to give me and I wouldn't accept them. So I repented and I asked God to forgive me. Then I said, God, would you back that train up and run it by here again? <laughs> I repent of being stupid. Uh, I'll, I'll take whatever you want to give me. Uh, I've been able to give my son several automobiles and he's always so blessed and the last one I gave him uh, what I guess a few months ago this year last year oh he was so thrilled and he gave me back he gave me his car and I told him I said son you it's a good thing I gave you this car a good thing God told me to give it to you I said this thing you're driving is a trap <laughs> and I had given it to him 20 years ago had 215,000 miles on it so we just traded I have spent $10,000 bringing that car back up to where you can drive it and not be afraid that you're going to break down and have to walk. And the first time a car was given to me, I said, I said we want to give you this car. I said, you mean to keep? I said, I said, well, can I pay you for it? They said, do you have the money to pay for it? I said, no. <laughs> it's yours. And you learn to live that way. And we've been able to do that not only for our son, but for other ministries and paid off church mortgages and given missionaries vans. I mean, you, you realize that that becomes a lifestyle. And to do that, you have to realize that you have to take ownership of what God has given you. Uh, he created it. He owned it. But then he gave it to you. Uh, let me talk just a moment very quickly about Global Reset. Um, economically, it's capitalism to socialism, cancel culture, build back better, Green New Deal. None of those things 
our global reset. Go to Matthew 24. And I've been teaching a lot along these lines. Now I'll try not to presume to teach this all in one Sunday morning. Matthew 24. This is Jesus talking to his disciples about the second coming of Christ. Not the rapture. They didn't know anything about the rapture. He was talking to them about his second coming. And he says uh, over in... uh, Let me find it now. If I had my Bible, I'd know exactly where it was. He tells them not to be deceived. He says all the things that are happening and will happen must come to pass. You know, I asked the Lord in 2020 why we can't stop this pandemic. I said, we're faith people. We've fasted, we've prayed, we've cursed, we've commended, we've done all that we know to do to stop this thing. He said, go back and read Matthew 24 and verse 8. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. And in, um, let's see, the next verse, he says, these things must come to pass. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Uh, Excuse me, yeah, verse 6. You'll hear wars, rumors of wars. You'll hear nation against nation kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilence, earthquake. He said these things must come to pass. This is the beginning of sorrows. He said you can't stop these things. They're going to come to pass. You can stop them from coming on you. But these things must come to pass. So don't get upset and, and angry or fearful or worried or anxious when these things start happening. But just know your authority is in Christ. Yes. You can stand and intercede for you, your family, your city, your state, your nation. But these things must come to pass. And what's what's going to happen? And I, let me see if I can find the junction here. Uh, it talks about after those days. It talks about the signs of the times. And it talks about a major shift. And he's talking about the... Um, let, me, let me see that Bible, Dave. It, even though it's, it, it may have the same division here. Are you all still there? Now, this looks like a bigger Bible. But let me see if I can find it. I know it's got bigger print. Or else, all of a sudden, my eyes have been healed. Okay, here it is. Verse 29. Matthew 24, 29. Jesus tells them what's going to happen to them. And he's basically speaking about Israel here. And he says in verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days... Shall the sun be darkened, the moon will give her light, stars fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man. That's what separates the rapture from the second coming. In the rapture, nobody sees Jesus. 
we rise to meet him. The second coming, we see him coming, riding a white horse. And so he says, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So go over to Second Thessalonians now. Second Thessalonians, and I want to show you the global reset. The global reset that's going to take place is going to be the transition into the great tribulation period. Not much has been taught about this. Hilton Sutton used to teach us a lot about it, but not much is being taught about it uh, uh, today. And I've started uh, studying and, and talking about it. In uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 1. Brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us as though the day of Christ had already come. Let no one deceive you by any means. Now, that's the first thing Jesus said to the disciples when they asked him, when's the end of the age going to be? He's, the first thing he said, take heed, no man deceive you. Don't be deceived. And the only way you can not be deceived is to know the truth. That's why you have to know the truth. You have to know where we are in time. People used to ask Brother Hagin all the time, where are we in time? He'd refer him to James 5. He'd refer him to Peter, where it says, be patient. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. God is not willing. He's not slack concerning his promise, but he's not willing that any should perish. That's what he's waiting. He's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. I'm glad he waited for me, but he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. So be patient. Don't be deceived. God hasn't forgotten his promise. So uh, he said in verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, uh, the day of Christ, the second coming, will not come unless the falling away comes first. Uh, your Bible may say of the apostasy. Another translation says the departure. And some have split this in two. The departure of what? the departure of the church from faith and the departure of the church from the earth. So he's saying the man of sin cannot be revealed. That, that's what he goes on and says next. He said the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The man of sin, the Antichrist, the false prophet, all of those characters cannot take center stage the beginning of the tribulation period, until after the departure, the departure of the church from faith. I mean, you know, there's a lot of churches today that started in faith that have departed from faith. Amen. The departure of the church from faith or the departure of the church from the earth. Hilton Sutton always taught us, he wrote a book in 82 called World War III. He makes it very clear, though, that World War III is not a world war like we've known, World War I, World War II, World War III. 
We are not, as some prophets have said, we are not in World War III now. That's not what's going on. We're not in the book of Revelations, the seals being poured out. Paul tells us that where we are right now, what's going on right now in, in, in the world is perilous times. He told Timothy that. He said, we're in perilous times. Everything that we're seeing in our culture is descriptive of perilous times. Not the tribulation, not the outpouring of God's wrath, because the scripture tells the church he has not appointed us to wrath. We're not going to be, we will not experience the wrath of God. We're going to experience the rewards of God at the judgment seat of Christ. But anyway, he goes on and he says that uh, the men of sin, Antichrist, false prophet, all that, cannot take place until after the apostasy or the departure of the church from faith or the departure of the church from the earth. Now, there's a lot of things that need to happen. And we can see some of them taking place right before our very eyes. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, it talks about Gog and Magog, Meshach and Tubal, and all those nations around them, which represents Russia, Turkey, different, uh, different nations. It said that they will attempt to invade Israel from the north. Now, Jeannie and I have been to Israel many, many times. We were there for the dedication of the U.S. Embassy in 218. We were in the Golan Heights. Uh, the Iron Dome had just intercepted about 24 or 40 uh, missiles. Um, the scripture says that Russia will invade Israel from the north. And it describes the condition of the country. And it said Israel will be at peace. Uh, there will be no walls, no bars. Well, Israel is not at peace now. There are walls and there are bars. After the rapture of the church and we're gone, we are, according to Thessalonians, we are the restraining factor. We are the restraining body that is preventing the tribulation from taking place. Tribulation cannot begin until after we're gone. And I'm going to talk to you about our job, what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be taking ownership of what God's given us. So the church is still here. Used to think that, you know, it was the Holy Spirit that was the restraining and, uh, when he's taken out. But the Holy Spirit's not going anywhere. The Holy Spirit's going to stay. Remember, after the rapture of the church, 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be preaching the gospel to the world. And the Holy Spirit will empower them. The Antichrist will be ruling and reigning, the false prophet, which will represent the spiritual part of the clan of evil. But the church is the restraining factor until that happens. Well, when we were in Israel, there is no peace. In fact, when I served with CUFI, Christians United for Israel, we uh, met Jared Kushner, Jason Greenblatt, which uh, is Trump's son-in-law and lawyer, when they were working on what is now the Abraham Accords, which afforded a certain amount of peace in the region. And uh, 
it's very interesting what's happening in that part of the world. Different ones are moving their embassy to Jerusalem. Nobody ever thought they would. And when we were there, Brother uh, John Hagee called me and said, now I've been asked by the president to have dinner with him at the White House. Pray for me. So he called me back afterwards and I said, what did the president want? He said he wanted to know about moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He didn't want to start an Arab war. And he said, I assured him, don't be concerned about it, Mr. President. Israel can take care of herself. Amen. And she is. And she will. But all this is boiling in the Middle East. And very few people will know exactly uh, what's going on. And they use, they use terminology that they don't explain. That's why you need to know what the Word says for yourself. Because the next major event that's going to take place in our world is the rapture of the church. And nobody knows when that's going to happen. Not even Jesus, but we see the signs all around us. Now, a friend of mine wrote a book called The Disappearing. The Disappearing, and he said, the event that will shock, rock the world. Now, we all remember events that have happened in our lifetime. We remember the assassination of John Kennedy, assassination of Martin Luther King. We remember 9-11. We remember Uvalde. We remember all the things that have happened in our lives as a nation, as a people, plus things that have happened in our personal lives. But we go on with our life, right? We remember our loved ones, family and friends that died with COVID. But we move on. Life moves on. Look at Roe versus Wade, 1973. Abortion on demand, legal. Now it's been reversed. Hallelujah. We're moving on. Yes. We remember these things. But when the rapture of the church takes place, life will not move on. This earth will go into chaos and turmoil. Nobody really knows how many Christians are rapture ready. But let's just say a fourth or a third of the world's population is raptured. What's that going to do to the economy? Your neighborhood, where you work. Millions and millions of people missing. Mothers are going to run into the little nursery bedrooms where their babies are in the crib and the child is going to be gone. And the mother is going to run screaming to the telephone. And she's going to say, somebody has abducted my child. Somebody's stolen my child. Nobody really knows exactly what's going to happen. But the church company, this auditorium, will be empty. Yes, sir. Except for people that are so scared now. They're going to run in here looking for somebody to explain to them what's happened. But Dave won't be here. <laughs> he won't be here to... Now, maybe some of the preachers that don't believe in a rapture, I haven't taught the rapture. I heard one minister friend, I know him well, he said this rapture business is a bunch of nonsense. 
Maybe some of those people will be around. People are going to want to know, where did my mother go, my father, my, my sister, my brother, my aunt, my uncle, where are all these people? Well, they went up in what's called the rapture. What is the rapture? I mean, you know, on, on CNN and Fox and all the news broadcasts, they'll be trying to explain <laughs> what happened. And there'll probably be some preachers on the panel trying to explain what happened. So the rapture of the church is going to be the next great event that takes place. And after the rapture, then there's going to be a global reset because the world will go into, quote, the tribulation period. Now, you just need to know about it so you'll know the time we're in, where we're headed, and you can help others. But you're not going to be here. Amen? I hope you're not going to be here. You're not going to be here. <laughs> Faith, life, church will be closed. <laughs> Unless you put a marquee out there and it says, uh, in case of rapture and we're not here, dial this number. <laughs> I don't know who, whose number you would leave, but or turn to this scripture. Our Sunday service is canceled. We've left town. <laughs> We've left uh, Missouri. We've left Florida. We're not here any longer. And it's going to rock the world. The financial economy, the uh, economic system will collapse. Stock market will collapse. There'll be no workers. <laughs> Hardly any workers now, but there won't be any workers, <laughs> period. Everybody will be gone. Um, let me just throw this in here. I was listening to an interview of uh, with Elon Musk, and Elon Musk was asked. Actually, he was being interviewed by two evangelists, and they were asking him about God. He's not an agnostic. He believes there is a God. He just says... I can't prove it scientifically. He said, but if I could, I'd believe in him. And so they asked him if he'd like to be saved. And he said, um, what do you mean saved? You know who I'm talking about, Elon Musk? And he said, if, uh, if, if I believed that Jesus could save me, he said, I would welcome it. So pray for him. But he said this, they asked him, they said, what do you think is the greatest fear that we have to face uh, in today's culture? He said, there is one thing that is more dangerous than any nuclear warhead, and that is AI. Artificial intelligence is more dangerous than any nuclear warhead that we could ever develop. And they said, why? He said, because the people that are working on artificial intelligence, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Uh, they think they're smarter than they are. And he said, and they're out to create robots. And he said, eventually, if they're successful, there'll be no need for human beings. We'll just have robots. And he said, now, we're all a little bit cyborg. We're all a little bit bionic. If you look the words up, it means 
part human and part machine. He says if you carry one of these or you got a phone in your pocket, you're already a cyborg. But he said there's one thing that's, that's going to be missing in, in this artificial intelligence. He said, and that's morality. I thought, wow, listen to this guy. He doesn't, he, he's not saved. He doesn't believe in God unless he can prove it with a computer. He said, but the, the issue that's going to be left out of AI is morality. There'll be nobody to say what is right and what is wrong. There'll no, be nobody to control the cyborgs. There'll be nobody to control the robots. And he said, that is more dangerous than any nuclear warhead. And then if you ask Warren Buffett uh, what the, you should invest in, he said, invest in artificial intelligence fuel because it's going to go sky high. Why does Jeff Bezos want to go to Mars, establish life on other planets to put up an Amazon. They're looking at it from a commercial perspective. Why do these guys even want to go into space? Because they believe, Elon Musk believes this, that eventually planet Earth will be uninhabitable. You'll not be able to live here. So, we're going to open up other galaxies. We're going to create cyborgs. But my brother and sister, you will not be here. We'll be enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll be standing at the judgment seat of Christ, not to be judged or condemned, but to receive our rewards. My wife just recently put together a book called My Supernatural Encounters with God. And, and one of these supernatural encounters that she's had was a time that she uh, had a vision and Jesus was talking to her. She just said, Lord, I just love you so much. I just want to touch you. You know, Jesus is still the center of our focus. <laughs> she said, I, I, just, I just want to touch you. And Jesus said to her, daughter, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. No, oh, she said, he said, when you get to heaven, you can touch me. And she said, but Lord, everybody's going to want to be touching you. And he said, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I will personally serve you, and you can touch me then. <laughs> Hallelujah. Whew. The night I was saved in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Grand Ole Opry, I had gone to Jimmy Snow's church, Evangel Temple Church, who put on this Grand Ole Gospel radio program from the Opry live the first airing i was i was there it's february the 11th 1972 and i walked in the church auditorium and there's a picture of jesus it was commissioned by johnny cash it was painted by a native american and wherever you go in the auditorium jesus is looking right at you now i'm not saved i'm i'm in the liquor business and I'm sitting out there and all these people are laying on the floor speaking in a funny language. I had no idea what was going on. I was raised Presbyterian. We were God's frozen people. You know? 
So I'm looking at that picture, and those eyes are looking at me. So I go over here, and he's still looking at me, still looking at me. I couldn't get away from him. And that night, Jimmy Snow gave him an altar call. Jeannie and I were sitting up in the balcony of the old Ryman Auditorium. And he said, if you need a new life, Jesus Christ is the only way. Get up and come down here. So 76 of us got saved that night. I walked down to the front, asked Jesus to come to my heart, was born again. And I got a copy of that picture, have it in my office. Um, and when you walk in my office, that's the first thing you see. And anywhere you go, he's looking right at you. Jesus is real. You're going to meet him face to face. And after the church departs, then there's going to be a global reset. So don't let all of the conspiracy theories and the false prophets tell you it's going to be this or that or whatever. Find it in your Bible. Uh, let, me, let me close with this. Um, at the judgment seat of Christ, and I'll give you the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5.10 and 1 Corinthians 3.9-14. through 14. And it tells us that we're going to receive our rewards for what we've done in the body of Christ. It's not about salvation. You have to be saved to get there. You don't get saved after you get there. You have to be saved before you get there. And it's about rewards, whether you took ownership of what God gave you. And there may be those of you sitting in the audience today that God's spoken to you and given you assignment, given you things to do, and you haven't done them. Well, get busy because you don't know when the rapture is going to take place. And when you get up for the judgment seat of Christ, you want to be rewarded for what uh, he gave you. So you've got to take ownership of it. There are going to be five crowns for the believer. Number one, the crown of life given to every believer. Number two, the pastor's crown. The crown of glory. A pastor is going to get a double reward because the pastor is supposed to live with the people. He's supposed to be there to shepherd them. Number three, the soul winner's crown. It should be easier to draw people to Jesus now than ever before. The soul winner's crown. Number four, the crown of righteousness. You'll get that crown. And number five, the victor's crown. Hallelujah. Everything you've overcome, every time that you overcome, and whatever's born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcometh our faith. Did y'all get anything out of this today? Yes, I've cut it short because there's no more time, but I would like to close by reading you uh, this statement. This is... Ten days ago, Israel's gas reserves are so rich, they can supply not only Israel. Now, this is the um, Israel 365 News, June 16th. That's ten days ago. They can not only supply Israel, but Europe as well. And that's precisely what happened when Israel and the European Union signed a natural gas agreement. Folks, this is history made in our lifetime. Praise God. <laughs> Ten days ago. 
the agreement was forged in Cairo as Egypt, in Egypt, that the gas will flow via Egypt's pipeline. Egypt held Israel in bondage for 400 years as slaves. And now Israel is going to furnish all of Europe with oil and gas through the Egyptian pipeline. (laughs) Signing this trilateral agreement is Europe's solution for replacing the Russian gas imports. Western Europe is trying to distance itself from Russia, including economic boycotts. This phenomenon provided Israel with a rare opportunity to provide natural gas once provided by the the Kremlin. Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, said in a joint press conference with Israeli Prime Minister Neftali Bennett in Jerusalem on Tuesday, with the beginning of this war and the attempt of Russia to blackmail us through energy, by deliberately cutting off the energy supplies, we we decided to cut off and get rid of the dependency on Russia and to move away from Russia and diversify, adding, it is an outstanding step bringing our energy cooperation to the next level. Here's the headline. Israel to supply natural gas to Europe and its connection to a blessing from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15.6. Hashem, your God, will bless you as he's promised. You will extend loans to many nations, but require none yourself. You will dominate many nations, but they will not dominate you. God's word says he will put hooks in the jaws of of the attacking nations. That's Russia. It's more than proper to wonder if Israel's great oil and gas reserves just might be the bait. Now, the scripture says you'll put a hook in their jaw. The Bible says in Ezekiel 38 39, they will think an evil thought, and that will be their downfall. They're going to invade Israel for oil and gas and food. And when they do, God is going to start fighting for Israel. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God will hook this evil leader, bringing God's, uh, Gog's forces down to be all but totally destroyed on the mountains of Israel. All of this means that the rapture may be very near occurring because the Gog-Magog attack, which is what some have called World War III, Russia's invasion of Israel, can only take place after the rapture of the church. So all the things that you hear, the negative things that are going to take place in the world, all the false prophecies and all the whatever, you know now what the scripture says. So you know none of that's going to take place while you're here. You're going to be gone. If you believe in the pre-trib rapture, if you don't, just stay here and tribulate, you know. 
But this is, this is wonderful news to share with your family and friends because I guarantee you, folks, most churches in the United States have no knowledge of what I just told you this morning. Most Christians don't know because the pastors aren't preaching it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this, this opportunity to minister to these people, both here in Branson and in Sarasota. And I ask that you quicken to them right now the urgency of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and being born again, going in the rapture, I bind fear and anxiety and worry in Jesus' name. Now, with eyes closed and 